Welcome to the first episode of PluxCast, Tales from the Frontline of Public Affairs, where myself and Connor Allen will share with you tales, tips and tricks about public affairs and lobbying here in Brussels, trying to cut through some of the misconceptions, but also share some of the things we've learned over the decades that I've been doing it and the months that Connor has been working in this game. Months. But I years, think, I'll have you know. <laughs> okay, years, but fairly new to the public affairs game. And I think what we're going to try and do here is I've been working in, in this area for um, coming up to 20 years from my sins. Um, but Connor's uh, come from the European institutions in the, in the last couple of years. So he's coming with a perception of um, some new ways of doing things, but also how uh, lobbying is perceived by the institutions. So hopefully between ourselves... And the interesting guests we're going to have on board in the coming episodes will be able to share something that's interesting for everyone out there uh, and, and look to indeed start a conversation. So as we go forward with this, we look forward to hearing from you all about your thoughts, your views, your experiences, but also what you'd like to, to hear from us in episodes to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Because of that gap in the experience between us, that brings a really interesting dynamic because, yeah, you've been a lobbyist for 20 years. And what I see coming into lobbying is that there are many, many people who did things a certain way for 10, 15, 20 years. But times have started to change. I mean, the fact we're doing a lobbying podcast right now shows just how much this field is evolving, how much it's changing. I mean, if you look at the use of social media, you will see just how much innovation and how, well, how much is changing, really. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a really interesting piece to, to discuss with our guests coming forward, just how people are embracing that change. And I think you're right, Connor, we need to embrace that change because we're seeing in the institutions, and you'll know this better than I do, a younger generation of, of policymakers, uh, a younger generation of assistants. So the old way of doing things, of writing that really deep and convoluted 20-page position paper full of well-crafted arguments and, and technical detail, still important to do. But really, if you want to get cut through with, with that younger generation, they're not going to read that. They're going to, I think, as you said once, throw it in the bin. So we need to be punchier. We need to be crisper. We need to embrace the future and do it in a more transparent way. So I think by doing things like this and by doing lobbying in a more open and modern way, embracing more digital, doing things more publicly, we cut through that perception that lobbying is is opaque and, and done behind closed doors. It's that was the old way because that was the technology and, and, and the, the tools we had to hand. But there's nothing wrong with doing it in a more public facing, more open way uh, and being clear and open about what it is that we, we have to say to policymakers. That kind of approach to, to transparency and openness really informed how we're doing that podcast. I mean, it's really informal and we really plan to have this as a kind of open thing. And I don't know about you, but I'm quite happy if someone wanted, if, if when I go to meet an MEP, if someone wanted to record that meeting, I'll be happy. If you if you can't if you're meeting someone and you want to hide the content of that meeting from the public at large, or you want to hide what you're doing from the public at large, you're doing something wrong, aren't you? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Obviously, there'll be occasions when you're sharing information that's maybe commercially sensitive or relates to some sort of commercial secrets. Obviously, you can't do that in in a public public way. But yeah, I, I, I think all the information I present to an MEP, so the slides and the materials, are generally, I'd be happy to have that in, in, in the public eye. And 
You, I think we should almost treat a meeting with with a policymaker as as a public meeting because we're saying something to somebody who then can go on and and repeat it and and, and share it. But equally, the stuff that I would present to MEPs in in a meeting, I'd, I'd probably also present at an event or or in a forum such as this in in, in the discussions we're having now. So I think the more that we're transparent, um, the better that is, and that and that works both ways as well. Um, I think it's important for MEPs to be clear in. The meetings they're having, um, MEPs and, and officials at the commission, and be transparent so the citizens know what's going on. And I think when it comes to the citizens and our European democracy, lobbying is a key part of democracy. You know, a lot of what's done here in Brussels um, has a very significant impact on on businesses, whether it's the business we work for, or for other industries, or for the environment. But there's that lack of expertise there. Um, MEPs are an expert maybe in, in one or two things; they're not an expert in anything. So our role as a lobbyist really is to bring that that knowledge that we have ourselves or that we gain from colleagues within the business and communicate that to to policymakers. So it's almost more of a an educational role. Uh, an education should be transparent and open. So again, we're not doing anything in, in secret. It's simply communicating what we know, um, sharing our understanding of how legislation will impact our business that we we know best, but equally speaking to them and understanding what the political expectations are and what the political constraints are and feeding that back into our own business so that we're all operating in, in an environment with as much information as as, as possible yeah it, it's such a two-way two-way road so to speak isn't it and when i was in the parliament i worked for two meps and the one critical mistake that almost every lobbyist did was assume that i know everything about the topic and i worked on for example gdpr but i had no background in it i had no knowledge of it and then I was meeting with lobbyists, you know, four, five, six lobbyists a week, and they would bombard me with jargon, with, uh, you know, Amendment 23 on, on uh, page 405 of this huge list of amendments. Uh, well, one of the key principles of lobbying is to make what you're saying clear, concise, and understandable. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to a complete expert in the subject, someone who's new, or the public. Whatever you're saying has to be understandable, easy to consume, and actable upon. And I think the actable upon bit is is you've hit the nail on the head with that one. Too many times I've seen um, lobbyists and, and industry representatives put together a lot of put a lot of effort into putting together a position paper or, or a set of slides and, and, and taken the MEP or, or their assistant to the commission official through it and they've nodded along and at the end said, well, that was very interesting, but what do you want me to do? Mm. So I think that call to action, and it, and it has to be a very clear call to action. So can you ask a question of the commission for us? Can you propose an amendment? Can you tell us what the political dynamics are? That call to action has to has to be there. And I think you're also absolutely right on the, the need for clear communication. And, and I look forward to welcoming our friend Laura Shields onto the podcast in, in one of the future episodes. And, and she's very strong on this. Clear communication, cutting through the jargon is, is so vital because, as you say, Connor, people aren't experts. They're time poor. Um, and, and just trying to communicate in, a, in an unclear way or using jargon or, or terms that aren't understood or using too many words, it's just, it's almost rude. It's wasting people's time and it's not effective because you're not getting across to them. So I really strongly believe in, in, in comms and policy and lobbyists working hand in hand. In fact, 
it's the same job mm. and there isn't that difference between them and you sometimes see that in brussels is, is comms is one field and, and policy is another but really they need to work so closely to communicate those key messages into policymakers in that that crisp and and, and clear way um so that people understand it mm. well what about if i draw on your your personal experience so for those of you listening patrick's done all the evil industries so he's done you've done what oil gas i've uh, done Oil and gas, I've done tobacco, currently doing cars, but I've also done railways, so that's where I got my, my karma from. But um, kind of calls them evil industries, but they're still legitimate industries that provide a lot of employment and, and, and tax revenue to, to governments. And they have something to say and they're regulated and um, they should be part of the process still. Yeah, so some habits never die. Eh? <laughs> um, but yeah, take, take out a pinch of salt, but draw on your own personal experience can you think off the top of your head of the really, really bad examples of communication? Maybe not necessarily in the places you worked, but you must have come across some absolute disasters of lobbying campaigns. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of the work that trade associations do, so trade associations do a great, important piece of work, bringing together industry representatives, but sometimes they're not always, always the best at, at comms. And you know, in, in associations I've worked for before, I won't name names, but some of their thinking about what constituted news really didn't hit the mark. So, for instance, no one cares that Trade Association had a conference. So if you see a headline, the Widgets Association was pleased to hold its annual conference. That's not news. That's not good communication. What we need to see is, well, did the Widgets Association decide something really important or do they have a request for policymakers? That needs to come up to the top. So, And, and I think the problem with communication sometimes in, in, in Brussels and in, in the policy environment more broadly is people almost assume that people care about what you're doing. So for yourself as the association or the business or the NGO, you think, right, we've had that conference. That's really important. And it, it probably is because probably you spend a lot of time organizing it. But nobody else cares. Mm. All they care about is, well, what was the key takeaway? What is the ask? What was the decision? That's what needs to come through in, in, in communication and strip away all the sort of self-referential stuff. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with comms in, in, in Brussels is there's too much fluff. There's too much reflecting on what we need as an industry, what our self-interested is, um, what is it we've done. Nobody cares. Absolutely. You know, and, and you've probably seen that in, in the parliament. So I'll, I'll turn the question back on you, you know, as... When you were in Parliament, what do you think was the worst thing that, that came your way in terms of a, a position paper or, or a lobbying campaign? Well, I'll, I'll take a, little, a, a slightly different approach to you, because what you just mentioned, that's an example of that kind of organisational self-importance informing the communications in a not necessarily malicious, but a bad way. Mm. Right? I have many malicious ways. So I'll give you two examples. The first of all, uh, from the, my current job, uh, I'm also uh, also a real lobbyist. Um, so I was in Strasbourg a few months ago, and I heard from uh, a rather disgruntled assistant that a lobbyist had forced his way into their office, so saying the words, I demand a meeting, my industry is so important, you must listen to me. That's downright malicious, it's disrespectful, it's rude, and quite frankly, I'm baffled that in 2022, someone has to tell someone to politely knock, I don't know, send your meeting request two weeks in mm. advance, don't barge into an office. But I also remember, I worked on the Copyright Act, and perhaps you won't remember this, but there were a few companies who were opposed to certain provisions within that act, 
and they bombarded the parliament with emails. They crashed the server a couple of times, actually. Uh, and I think I remember 320,000 emails in my junk email from this group of organizations. The point I'm making with this is, yes, self-importance can, can make you have bad communications, but also it can lead perhaps people of a certain personality type or, or people of a certain point of view towards doing actively bad things. But what's going to happen? You're going to trash your reputation. You're never going to meet any of those MEPs again. And what do you do for the next 10 years when you have no access and you have no ability to meet with decision makers? I think you make a good point around reputation. I think it'll be interesting maybe to, to speak to some experts in this field over the next episodes. Um, but I think, again, one of the mistakes that sometimes lobbyists make is they're there on the battlefield when there's a dossier in place. So something's going through co-decision or there's a, there's a vote. They're there, they're pushing, they're active, they're making their voice heard. But when there's nothing in co-decision, they just step back and, 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 and sit on rest on their laurels but that's really when you need to be doing the most to build up that reputation to build up that network of contacts so when something does happen you don't have to be doing the the you know the the wild west style beating down the doors but you simply are able to pick up the phone and drop an email and say i've got something to share on this issue and i'd love to have a conversation and then it's about again coming back to sharing having conversations providing education rather than just trying to force your way into into the attention span of a a decision maker and that's hard to do it takes effort it takes time but it does pay off and i think that's you know both you and i would agree that that patient long-term reputation building piece is is super important and is fundamental to everything else that we we do so it'd be interesting to maybe talk to some other other people from a range of industries how they go about doing that reputation building piece um, and maintain contact with decision makers even when there isn't a file in the fire, so to speak. And if you do want to get in contact with us, contact us on Twitter. I'm at Connor Allen EU and you're Keating Patrick. I'm at Keating Patrick. Yeah. Just reflecting on what you said there, because you described it as a battlefield, didn't you? And I've talked to you a lot about this, so I don't think you actually believe that it is a battlefield in terms of decision making. You know, isn't it true that we are all collaborating on this? I would like to think so. And I think my view is, is, is about trying to be as collaborative as possible with, with decision makers, but we're not the only people on the field. And there are players out there who take opposing views to maybe the, the view that I would take. And that's, that's not just the industry I work now, but in, in, in previous areas of, of work, there's always varying points of view. And whilst you usually try to be collaborative, there will be sometimes points of confrontation. And so, yeah, maybe battlefield is, is, is too strong a word, but I once was in a training and, and talking about this and I referred to lobbying and public affairs as a game uh, and said, so, you know, the rules of the game are the same no matter what industry you're, you're, you're working with. And again, I was slapped down by the trainer for saying that very rightly because he came back to me and he said, it's not a game. Because this regulation that, that we're looking at and, and we're talking about may feel abstract to us here in, in, in the ivory towers of Brussels has real impacts on people's lives. It can impact people's jobs, and it can impact their health, their livelihoods, their lives even. So what we do here and what, what is done in Brussels is very important. So we shouldn't reflect it on it as a game. Um, it has real stakes. It has real implications on, on, on real people. So while maybe battlefield is too strong, game maybe is too weak. So perhaps we need another word for what it is that to describe the, the playing field that we're on. Yeah, we need some linguistic expert to come up with that. But, but 
I, I think that's so important to bear in mind in everything we're doing because, okay, let's take car industry automobiles. You know, if you look at the statistics, you are more likely than not to know someone whose job relies on the automobile industry. If you're a single mother and you need to take your kids to school, you need a car. If you are a builder and you're lugging tools around all day, you need a car. For many people, it's their what they rely on to access services, to access jobs. So when, you know, you look at the policy package that's going through at the moment, that's going to foster, you know, change on a level of the industrial revolution in terms of completely upending the industry. I actually feel quite depressed sometimes when I look at some of the the arguments coming forward on, on both sides, actually, and they completely take out the person and the European citizen at the end of it And yeah, it's almost as if they treat it like a game. They're seeing if they can win or lose, completely forgetting about the real-life people who do depend on their car ball. Yeah, and I I think you're you're right. Um, And that's really something that's that's missing in in the Brussels discussion. I think that's on all sides. Um, You know, you see some of the arguments from from the NGO side, and, and they don't always reflect on the needs of the citizens. So... You know, they may be looking at the environmental piece or, or, or talking more, more broadly about um, sustainability issues. But are they thinking really about what the individual plumber in Stuttgart or the, the single mother in Madrid is, is needing in terms of mobility? And that's, that's not just in our industry. I think it's, that's in all of the industries. And I think that's probably one of the change points that you and I would look to push. And I think we need to see in this, this younger generation of, of lobbyists, but also decision makers, is bringing the voice of the citizen back into the debate in, in in Brussels and bringing that discussion closer to real people. And, you know, we, we start to venture into existential philosophical territory here. But one of the challenges that the EU has is that perception of distance from real lives. And one of the things we can do as industry representatives is try and bring to life the the needs and the issues of the people who use our products and how they're going to be impacted in a very real way by the legislation that's decided here in Brussels. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, okay, we're lobbyists, so we care about what we do. But when you think of the average joke, you you say the plumber in Stuttgart, the one impression that almost is ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. lobbyists are somehow kind of Mad Men style, American style 'er ne'er-do-wells who go in with big briefcases of cash and, and do this, that and the other. Isn't it so important to challenge and refute that sort of thing? Because we do such an important job, not to blow our own trumpets or anything, but it's so important that we make these arguments. However, people do sometimes slip into that trap of misconceptualising what we're doing. Yeah, there is something to that. And, and, you know, I blame Netflix and the West Wing and um, that sort of thing for perhaps the the perception that people have of of what lobbying is. And, uh, you know, I think we need to move away from the term lobbying to to something more like government affairs or policy communications or something and and challenge that, that that perception because what we're doing is as i was saying before an essential part of the democratic process we're we're ensuring that decisions are taken with as broad a range of information as as possible if we just left policymakers to decide and 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 take votes on their own without feeding information they they wouldn't be making good decisions um, and equally, that's why we need the NGOs and the think tanks and, and other groups to be providing their point of view as well, providing a wide range of, of, of evidence, of points of view and information so that when the MEPs sit down to vote, they're doing so 
is educated and with as round a view of, of, of the policies as, as, as possible. And perhaps that is quite European way of doing it. I've, I've, I've worked with American lobbyists, Canadian lobbyists, and I've, I've, I've done a bit of government affairs action in, in Africa. And sure, there are different cultural norms and different ways of approaching it in different governmental systems. I would never want to see the American system come to Europe because I think that is... Well, corrupt is a strong word, but money does play a big role in in in, in access to 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 stakeholders. But here in Europe, it's 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 about the argument, and so it's about crafting the right arguments, coming up with the right evidence, understanding what policymakers are looking for, and and having a conversation and being an educator. And I think you know, rather than saying I'm a lobbyist, I would say perhaps a better term is an educator. And I think that's quite an quite an emphatic note to end upon. So therefore, you know, I mean, I hope that kind of discussion piqued your interest in in what we do in, in, in our profession, a few of the issues around it. And I mean, you know, we're overflowing with stories. So we hope bit by bit to be sharing those stories as we go forward. Uh, if you do, if you have stories of your own and you want to get involved with this, just p- ping us a message on Twitter. Uh, but we do have quite a few exciting guests lined up that will come once a month. Are we doing this? Yeah, I think I think once a month is about about right. We don't want to overwhelm people, but once a month, um, we'll we'll spend about twenty minutes, thirty minutes with with somebody interesting, um, have a bit of a chat, get some insights, hopefully something interesting and and useful, and um, yeah, looking forward to hearing some some feedback from everyone out there who's listening. Mm-hmm.